0: I have a question for how do we get democratic lawmakers to fix their economic messaging? Why is the minimum wage a flat dollar amount instead of a percentage tied to the cost of living? I'm just curious what the best economic indicators might be for us who are kind of watching the economics of the country to reflect market humanism, as you called it. Thank you so much for taking my question.
2: On
1: this week's episode of Pitchfork Economics, we are doing another AMA, Ask Me Anything, and we have some awesome questions. So let's get to
0: it. This is Lisa from Indianapolis. Why is the minimum wage a flat dollar amount instead of a percentage tied to the cost of living?
2: Thanks. Uh, well, well, the answer, Lisa is politics uh, <laughs> obviously we shouldn't we shouldn't have this fight about raising the minimum wage. It should be indexed to something. Uh, Nick, uh, what would you index it to?
1: You know Lisa's idea is something that I never actually have considered. It's a fascinating idea and of course, the intent of the minimum wage is that it does represent some reasonable fraction of what it costs to live. Uh, And for sure, her question highlights a really important issue, which is that that the minimum wage, national minimum wage in the past has not been indexed to inflation or cost of living increases, which means that you have to have this ridiculous political fight every five or 10 years to raise it again. Of course, if we just Passed a national minimum wage and indexed it to productivity growth, or uh, inflation, or some other thing, then it would then it would continue to help folks maintain some kind of minimal standard of living. But, I mean, of Goldie, of course, you're you're right. the answer The answer to the question is politics, powerful forces at the Chamber of Commerce want the minimum wage to be as low as possible, so profits can be high as possible. That's the answer
2: right. and And one way you keep it low is to erode it by inflation. So correct. You know, uh, to know Lisa here in Washington State, our state minimum wage has been indexed to inflation for over twenty years. It's over thirteen fifty now. Uh, tied to inflation. Of course, uh, we did the $15 minimum wage in Seattle and it's uh, over $16 um, indexed for inflation. Had it been indexed to productivity, it would be uh, $23 an hour today. And the reason why I raised productivity is that in practice, the minimum wage uh, did rise with productivity over its uh, first 40 years. Originally, the minimum wage was for no special reason, it was uh, 50% of the median wage, and the median wage rose with productivity. So, so did the minimum wage, and I think there's a strong argument uh, for that type of index today.
1: Uh, absolutely, and and in fact, Goldie, the Se- Seattle's minimum wage, which people think in their heads is $15 an hour, is actually now $16.69 per hour. By the way, that's right. for everyone, including tipped workers who earn sixteen sixty nine plus tips, not two dollars and thirteen cents plus tips. You know that's been a big help for folks uh, who who earn that wage.
2: Right. So so if we index the minimum wage, great idea, Lisa, we should, uh, uh, we would achieve two things. One, we would avoid this political fight that has allowed the minimum wage to languish uh, for the past uh, 10 years, uh, hurting the lowest wage workers. And the other thing is it would be great for the economy because what is it that you say, Nick? When workers have more money- Businesses have more customers and hire more workers- Right, that is the virtuous cycle that we talk about a lot on this podcast, and that's what we've seen in Seattle and elsewhere. Uh, these municipalities and states that have raised their minimum wage. Yeah, and and just you know the sixteen sixty
1: nine number sticks in my head, Goldie, just because it's such an exemplar of what utter nonsense the neoclassical view that when you raise wages it kills jobs, it, because. Here in Seattle, Washington, restaurant workers earn not 8% more, not 80% more, but 800% more per hour than they do in other places that only pay $2.13 plus tips. And so if there was ever a natural experiment available on planet Earth to compare if it, if raising wages was a job-killing you know, big government attack on freedom. This is it, right? And right. in fact, we have a higher density of restaurants in places like Seattle than they and, do in in, yeah. in 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 Alabama, where you earn two dollars and thirteen cents plus tips or whatever it is. And it's just so such a black and white example that it's really worth it's really worth surfacing.
2: So Nick, our next question came by email from Rick from Baltimore. Uh, He asks, if we can establish an effective progressive tax rate, Would we still need means testing? For example, if we agree a child tax credit is a good thing, why not just give it and not worry about how much this family or that family earns? Basically, to sum up the rest of his question is, if we could get a truly progressive tax code, Nick, couldn't we just abandon means testing? Well, I'd say, again, Rick, uh, I'm going to answer the same way. The, the answer to your question is politics. Yeah. That's why we have means testing. And it's bad politics. And I think a lot of the people who demand means testing understand it's bad politics because they're trying to destroy, p- destroy public support for these programs. Of course, if we just taxed rich people like you, Nick, Uh, we could afford for everybody to receive these benefits without means testing, which, by the way, makes it really, really difficult to be poor. It locks out a lot of people who uh, qualify for these benefits. uh, And it means that people who don't qualify don't support it.
1: Yeah. One of the magical secrets to Social Security, of course, is that everyone gets it and therefore everyone supports it. And means testing programs tends to be a thing that uh, weakens support for it. I'm not quite as hardcore about eliminating means testing as you are, Goldie, but certainly in many, many, many circumstances, it's counterproductive. And, and, and when you live in a society where almost nine out of 10 families are effectively struggling uh, to make ends meet and have demonstrably been left behind... Uh, by the last 40 or 50 years of economic growth, when you think about it, if 90% of the folks in the society um, really should be getting the benefit, the cost of giving it to the extra 10 is pretty low, right? Even, even if you include people like me getting these benefits, uh, you know, the, the the net cost is low and the net political benefit is quite high
2: the net value to you is low and also not only is the cost low but the cost of administering mean tests is very high both to the government and to the, That's right. the people receiving the benefits it's uh, you know we've talked about this before it's hard work being poor it, yeah. it it's hard work Qualifying for these benefits and proving to all these separate agencies that you are, you know, under 200% of uh, the poverty rate or whatever the standard is, and constantly having to prove that you're not cheating and worried about these benefit cliffs where if you earn a little more this month, you lose your health insurance subsidy uh, where you no longer qualify for your rent subsidy. It, it's a it's a terribly complicated and mean and dehumanizing system. So just give it to everybody and raise taxes on the wealthy and even though the wealthy receive the benefit, you know, great, they're paying more taxes too. So it's a wash in the end.
1: Yeah, yes, Goldie, all of that is true. and um, at the end of the day, the problem here is not that the programs that we have to support poor people aren't adequate. The fundamental problem is that in a majority of cases, if companies were required to pay people enough to live in security and dignity, they wouldn't need these programs, right? at the, at the mm-hmm. core problem here is not the adequacy of the government programs, or frankly, how much we tax rich people although we should tax people more the the real money is in wages that's where right. the bulk of the economic system lies and the best way to solve these problems is to is to require companies particularly large companies to pay people enough so they don't need any of these programs so there so you have to ha- even have these conversations and if they right. did that the whole system would work better uh, uh you know tax taxes ideally could come down they wouldn't have to go up because people would not need these services and that's that you know that's the that's where the core of our political and advocacy energy should go
2: yeah it's important to remember that the bulk of the people receiving these benefits are the working poor these are people that's right. with jobs it's not they have bad, jobs they're not They have jobs. It's not that the problem is not that they don't earn enough money. It's that their employers don't pay them enough money. It's not their fault.
0: Hi, my name is Jacob uh, from Portland. I have a question for how do we get democratic lawmakers to fix their economic messaging? Uh, Presenting the infrastructure bill as a jobs bill was a good start. But why, when they talk about Medicare for all, do they tend to ignore the cost savings that would be passed on to the individual as well as all the small businesses?
2: Well, Nick, this is this this yeah. is what you've been hammering at for a decade. Why is it yeah. so hard to get democratic lawmakers to fix their economic messaging?
1: Yeah, so the core of the problem on the democratic side has been that really until the Biden administration, virtually every significant political leader on the left, with a couple of notable exceptions, uh, subscribed to the neoliberal and neoclassical economic framework. They all effectively believed the Republican talking points about raising wages, killing jobs and tax cuts for rich people, creating growth and any form of regulation, uh, destroying productivity and economic growth and all, all the, the rest of it. I know this for a fact because I have been in one-on-one dialogue and conversation with these folks for almost 20 years, You know, trying to fight through this nonsense. And so- the, the fundamental problem with democratic economic messaging, up until really Joe Biden, has been that they tried to have an economic message, but based it on all of the false assumptions conservative economic theorists subscribe to. And in that case, you're you're trying to talk out of both sides of your mouth. And you can't and nothing you say really makes sense other than. Oh, we feel really sorry for these people, so we should help them, which is no economic message at all, right? That's not a theory of growth. That's a theory of um, pity, uh, which is a terrible way to litigate these issues. It's just very, very ineffective.
2: Now, now to be fair, this is what they all learned in college in their econ right. one hundred and one class, and this is what they're still teaching in college in econ one hundred and one. Right. And you know, you've got you've got Joe Biden, uh, who took econ one hundred and one if he took it before the neoliberal revolution, before the Reagan revolution. Uh, he learned his economics in nineteen sixty. Uh, he learned his economics from the New Deal and from the Great Society. Uh, and so in a sense his age actually you know uh, put him in a position to be a a, a pre-neoliberal president uh, I think also you know we're we're painting with a broad brush there's a lot of Democrats who have tried valiantly on this issue. I think you have to give a lot of credit to Elizabeth Warren for changing the conversation. But most of all, uh, let's be honest, it's Bernie Sanders, the socialist, who really hammered at this for years and years and years And that first run for president in 2016, sparked a huge shift in the way people think and talk about the economy and how well he has done politically I think has taught uh, other Democrats that oh we, yeah maybe we we can change our narrative a little bit yeah but getting back to uh, Jacob's question what what do you think of the idea of shifting the narrative are our cost savings? Uh, that are passed on to individuals and small businesses, do you think that would be an effective uh, narrative on Medicare for all?
1: Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, the American healthcare system is the world's largest price fixing scheme. It's literally, uh, by almost a factor of two, uh, the most expensive system per citizen in the world. Um, with outcomes that are either at par or worse than our, um, you know, our our peer nations, and you know, as a consequence, uh, you know, we we devote almost twice as much of our GDP to healthcare as many other many other countries, and I think a big part of reforming the system is teaching people that the system that we um, that we have embraced is expensive for everybody. It's not just consumers, but also for businesses. And I think that that uh, angle of attack could be very, very fruitful in trying to reshape how we think about healthcare and how we should uh, solve the healthcare crisis problems. You know, as speaking as a business person, you're sort of trapped and held hostage by the healthcare industrial complex. I mean, believe me, if you could check a box and do it differently and deliver high quality health care to your employees for the price that they get to do it in Canada or Australia or England, people would happily do that. But you know the existing you know, private health insurance companies and the whole hospital system, they effectively have a stranglehold on the system. They want it to continue as is uh, because... That's the way to make the most money. And there's not, I mean, look, it tells you a lot about how powerful this stranglehold is that no large company, despite their massive amounts of power and resources, has found a way to break away from the system, right? I mean, just think about it. Do you really think that, you know, these giant businesses don't want to save money on healthcare? Of course they do. It just it's a remarkable thing that nobody has found a way to break the back of this sort of price-fixing scheme.
0: Hey, Nick and Goldie. My name is Sean Whiting, and I live in Philadelphia. And I'm just curious what the best economic indicators might be for, for us who are kind of watching um, the econ- economics of the country to reflect market humanism, as you called it, or middle-out economics. We know that Stock market is just a reflection of how rich people are feeling. What do you guys look at to say, oh, this is how the economy is really doing for the working class? Thanks so much. Really appreciate the show.
1: If it was me, the number one uh, metric I would look at is median worker income or median family income, and whether it's growing or not. Uh, Because I think my own sense is that that is the best proxy. For how the economy is doing overall and how well it will do in the future, because rising wages for the majority of citizens cures all ills. It really does. I mean, if a, of course, it makes people's lives better as individuals, but uh, but the but the knock-on effects are are insane. Like if people earn more money, they pay more taxes. <laughs> they pay more taxes. Uh, uh, government deficits uh, decline. If people earn more money, they buy more stuff. If they buy more stuff, there are more jobs created and on and on and on. And GDP, for example, is a terrible measure because it hides that uh, because it's an average. It doesn't it, it, GDP can go up and one person in the entire economy can be the beneficiary of all of that growth and everybody else can be stagnant and it still looks like the economy is increasing. So focusing... Our attention on what's happening to the typical family, um, I think, is the best way to understand what's happening economically.
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Nick. The median is the message. Median wage, median income. Of all the metrics, that's the easiest one.
0: Hi, Linda Cunningham. Today is June 8th, and ironically, the person you're speaking to about this tax changes in tax rate, mentions that, yeah, at a certain point, it's just about keeping score, which is exactly what I've been saying. You know, for these ultra-rich people, it's really just about where they are on the Forbes Richest 100. Is there any way to move them into some kind of other economic, financial, money, monetary system? Like you won Monopoly, you won the game, now you're just going to do something that keeps your score, but somehow still allows these corporations <laughs> to pay their employees' living wages. At some point, these people need to leave normal economy and the way they're sucking up all the money and move to some other economy. Uh, thank you so much for taking my question. Love your podcast. More people need to listen to it.
1: Yeah. Linda, it's a really interesting question. And I think that, you know, if I could just sort of rephrase it uh, back to you about, you know, how at a certain point, it's not about the money, it's about your relative status. It's about keeping score. And, you know, the thing about humans uh, in general is that we are highly status conscious but not everybody is as status conscious as uh, others, and 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 it turns out that many people who are very rich uh, and who work hard at being very rich are extraordinarily status conscious. They are in, enormously driven by that, and you're absolutely right. At a billion, does two billion dollars change your lifestyle from one billion? Well, of course, not. Not no, <laughs> uh, but it is. <laughs> But it is a very um, important status signifier for the group of people who compete in that world. Uh, and to be clear, they all know each other, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like we belong to the same clubs, we go to the same restaurants, you hang out. And, and so in the same way that uh, the folks that you know belong to you know, a local tennis club can be very, very competitive with one another, uh, at their level of tennis, in fact, maybe just as competitive as you know world-class tennis players competing at the world level. I mean, everybody competes with their peer group, and so you have this a pernicious effect occurring that is pretty hard to get out from under given human nature and the kind of people who are drawn to these things. And so at the end of the day, I don't think you can really change human behavior very much. What you can do is legislate changes that harness that ambition to public ends. And one of the best ways to do that is to tax the crap out of huge levels of income. So, you know, go ahead, work really hard, make a ton, but we get a lot of it to invest back into the broader society.
2: I would um, add to that, Nick, that obviously status and prestige and seeking these things, that is human behavior. It happens in all societies, but different cultures uh, achieve prestige and status in different ways, and it's not always... um, how many commas <laughs> in your uh, portfolio? It, it's no, not always. Of course, it's, it's not, not always. It's not always money. Um, so I think there's a certain amount of norm changing. Okay, but Goldie
1: in perestroika Soviet Union, uh, people weren't less competitive. They didn't have commas back behind their uh, behind their um, uh, name or in their in their net worth, but they did have DACAs Datas and power and prestige, yeah. uh, and they did just as hard for a different range of things. And I think you could make a very strong argument that ways in which that society engendered competition was even less, even more pathological, less fruitful, less useful than what we have. You know, you gather a large group of people together in a, so- in a society; people are going to compete. Uh, for status and power the question is not will they or won't they do that the question is how do you best harness that activity into an end that works for everybody i mean the inter i mean i'm not exactly sure what you mean by moving us to a different economy and in many ways we already exist in a different economy certainly the super yacht economy is not part of the normal economy the private jet economy is not part of the normal economy. I mean, yes, I mean, Gulfstream does make some jets. And yes, there are people who actually are paid to fuel those jets, but it is not a meaningful part of the normal economy. And um, and I think th- this is one of the big problems is that you have all of this, you know, the Sotheby's auction house is part of a different economy. You know, like when somebody pays $50 million from for some painting, this is clearly not economic behavior, which is useful to the broad public, right? It's taking and taking money and effectively pulling it out of the economic system and sticking it on somebody's wall. Um, talk about slowing down the velocity of money. <laughs> I mean, you know, like it doesn't get slower than stuck to a wall. And, um, you know, that $50 million could be used for people to get haircuts with. Right. That's a lot of haircuts.
2: Maybe we just need to prevent you uh, super rich people from socializing with each other. So you you can't you can't measure your uh, your bank accounts against each other. Well, Uh, that way, if if you were only hanging out with me, Nick, you'd 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 feel really good. Uh, That's true.
0: Hi, my name is Frank from Georgia. And I was just wondering, given many employers skirt wages and providing benefits by reducing hours, why is the minimum wage hourly instead of annual? Should there be a minimum annual wage or is hourly somehow better?
1: Well, Frank, that's, a, that's again, that's a really interesting question about a, a sort of a new way to think about the minimum wage. And you are dead right. Uh, we have allowed companies to game the system by, uh, for instance, reducing hours for folks below the threshold uh, by which they need to pay benefits. We have written extensively about this, and if you're interested, you should check out our piece called Shared Security, Shared Growth, which you can easily look up on Google. Uh, but we are strong proponents of eliminating these cliffs. We believe that, you know, um, among other things, uh, an hour's worth of work should generate an hour's worth of benefit. There should be no way to not pay benefits to folks because they don't work full-time. Uh, and you know a lot of these problems can be solved if congress would simply close these ridiculous loopholes and make it harder for companies to game the system uh, it, you know an annual wage sounds a lot more like ubi it doesn't seem i'm not a big proponent of ubi myself cuz i really do think that if you just require companies to pay adequate wages you can get 95% of the way there
2: Yeah, to be clear, uh, under that shared security system we're talking about, we have three principles uh, that uh, benefits should be universal, uh, portable, and prorated. And so prorated gets to what you're talking about, Frank, uh, that idea, you know, if you work under 30 hours a week now, you don't qualify for benefits, Uh, whereas under a prorated benefit system, uh, you get an hour's worth of benefit for every hour worked. It completely takes away this uh, incentive for employers to keep people part-time. It also, by the way, there's a lot of workers who want to work part-time who are forced into full-time work because they need the benefits, and it takes away uh, that incentive as well. So it takes a lot of inefficiencies out of the market, which is a good thing, and it rationalizes the system so everybody gets the benefits they've earned. So Goldie, I think that's all we have time for this week. But don't worry, we'll be answering more of your questions very soon. On the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we'll be talking with Kansas State Representative Jason Propes about the big Frito-Lay strike in Topeka.
0: Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.